This is Duke University. Uh, so thank you for coming here this afternoon. Um, in recent days, uh, with several conversations I've had with you or emails, it became readily apparent to me that there is a high level of angst and apprehension about what was going on in the financial markets, especially for those who, of you who are interested in a career in finance. So as a result, it became apparent to me that the school needed to address these concerns head on. And myself and others in the administration decided that we wanted to have an expert in global risk management come in to speak to you. And while we can't solve the problem, at least we can provide you with some insights and knowledge that should serve you well, whether it's in a job interview or just general conversations with others. Fortunately, we didn't have to look very far to find that expert. Uh, there is no one better able uh, or better equipped to talk about what's happening on Wall Street and around the world than our own Professor Cam Harvey. Professor Harvey is one of the world's leading scholars in global risk management and has won numerous awards for his research. He received his PhD from the University of Chicago, where Eugene Fama and Merton Miller served on his dissertation committee. Widely quoted in the press, in fact, in just the last couple of days, he's been in Business Week and the Wall Street Journal, Professor Harvey serves as the editor of the Journal of Finance, the most prestigious academic journal in that field. And from the virtual town hall that he did last week, where he predicted what Treasury Secretary uh, Paulson ultimately presented, I think you already know that uh, he's going to offer you some keen insights into what's going on in the financial markets and how it will impact you and the world. So with that, let me introduce Professor Cam Harvey. Uh, thank you, Mike. Um, what we've got planned today is uh, a town hall, which means I guess I need to walk around uh, and take questions. So I plan on making remarks only for maybe 10 minutes and, um, and then questions. And if you don't offer the questions, I've got a stock of uh, questions I'll ask myself, some of which I can answer uh, and some of which I can't. I will try to provide the insights. I'm not sure they're going to be keen, uh, but I will try. Uh, it is a great time to be a tenured professor in finance. <laughs> Why are you at Duke University rather than Wall Street? Well. Um, this is also, while it, it seems like uh, a time of great stress for you, um, going out in the job market in a year or, or two years, um, I'm also going to try to uh, convince you that it's not as dire as people are uh, predicting. Indeed, one of the themes of my remarks is that the investment opportunities that are going to be available in the next year are just historic in proportions. So it might be that the mix changes uh, for the skill set in finance, but the demand for finance will be as high uh, as it's ever been, and especially uh, in the context of international markets. So it used to be that if you wanted a career in finance and you're graduating from a top school in the US, you looked at Wall Street. And we've kind of gradually moved away from it. And indeed, 
Um, when I heard that uh, we were announcing our globally distributed business school on the Monday, uh, I sent an email on Sunday saying, no, can we delay that? Because Monday's gonna be a day of news that will overshadow uh, the globally uh, distributed business school. Well, like in a way, it was a, a, a good timing because the model that we're proposing in terms of kind of looking beyond the US uh, is the model that will survive in the future, and this is a good example of it. Um, that there are opportunities always in the world, and they might not be in Wall Street or be diminished in Wall Street, but there's um, 100 North Tryon Street, right? You know where that is? Yeah, Charlotte, yeah. So, uh, largest banking uh, center in, in the US, I believe, now. So. Um, <laughs> There, there are opportunities uh, in North Carolina, opportunities uh, outside the U.S. obviously uh, are dying uh, to get the expertise of top students uh, trained at the, the elite business schools in the U.S. So I believe, and I, I say this up front before I talk about um, the details of the crisis, um, I believe that the reaction should be to diversify your search, um, diversify it outside of the US, aggressively. There's plenty of opportunity, and there's plenty of opportunity, in, in my opinion, uh, given that we're gonna go into a period of high volatility, and high volatility for people in finance is not necessarily a bad thing, okay? Because if you're smart, you get in low and you sell high, and that's what we wanna do. So, so I am not the, uh, the doomsayer, though we're in a serious uh, uh, situation, and let me kind of go through my take on it. The other kind of fortunate thing is that you're here right now. Uh, you could have been working at Lehman Brothers right now, right? So you're here right now. And uh, for, for me as a finance academic, uh, we should not waste this opportunity because this is a historic learning opportunity. Um, to have an event like this and in real time figuring out what the implications are, trying to analyze why it happened, what the right policy moves are. And uh, I think that that will be something that uh, potentially could serve you well uh, into the future. So let's start with kind of my take on this crisis. And, you know, I hate to keep saying, you know, I told you so, I told you so, but I'm gonna mention that a, a few times. Um, and, and actually, on the Fuqua website is a blog that I wrote uh, two and a half years ago that described my experience at the World Economic Forum in Davos. And I was one of the speakers there. And um, there are two particular opportunities um, that I had. And one was um, a cab ride that I had. It was actually not a cab, it was like a limo. Um, with uh, Richard Shelby, so just Shelby and myself and Davos. I got his ear and I'm saying, at that time he's chairman of the Senate uh, Banking Committee, and at the time I'm trying to make the case, you've got a problem in terms of risk management. It's not just investment banks, it's the banking system. You've got banks that are acting as basically giant hedge funds. So you've got risk that you don't know about, and there's gonna be a bad outcome. And there was a second episode where I was actually a speaker at, um, at one of the, the events there, where basically made the same case. And let me kind of describe the case 
those, uh, I guess I'm not teaching my uh, investment analysis and portfolio global asset allocation course, but uh, what we do in that course, and all the materials are up uh, on the website, we talk about global risk management. And we talk about a particular mistake that people make. And it is a mistake that is stunning to me that people didn't learn the lesson in August 1998. Okay, August 1998 is when LTCM blew up, large hedge fund. Hedge fund that uh, was run by you know, uh, the who's who of Wall Street, including two Nobel laureates in finance. Okay, one of them in charge of risk management. So what, what basically happened there was uh, a series of mistakes. The first mistake was that there was extreme leverage used, like 100 to 1. The second mistake was that the credit was, that was extended using 100 to 1 leverage was extended at almost the treasury bill rate, 25 basis points above uh, government funding. Okay. The third mistake was the risk management systems that they had in place didn't properly assess the downside. Now, you might say, well, that's easy to say in hindsight. But in particular, what my research shows is that often what's assumed is that your distribution and payoffs have a normal distribution. It is easy to work with, analytically very tractable, but it's rare that you actually have that type of distribution. And you might look at the data, and it kind of looks normal, but if you apply 100 times leverage, it's definitely not normal. So you get these things occurring that don't make any sense. So LTCM experienced a, I think they said it was something like um, a 50 standard deviation event. Well, we can actually figure out the probability of an event like that. And I can look it up. And the probability of that event, and actually you have to, match the probability with looking at the data that drove them you know, into trouble. You look at the data, you see a move that looks big, but not that big, but it's 50 standard deviation event. So the probability of that occurring is somewhere in the range of one divided by the number of atoms in the universe. So what does that tell me? The risk management system failed. Okay, this is also a situation today where we've got um, investment banks and banks okay, doing risk management with leverage using systems that don't put the proper probability on the tail events. Like to me, the purpose of risk management is to look at the bad scenario and make sure there's a way out, make sure you survive. That's not what Okay, so people have talked about many different causes for the current crisis, and you know, there's no one cause. Talk about the cheap money, um, where uh, former chairman Greenspan had negative uh, in real interest rates, effectively. It's a very cheap money. Um, people have talked about you know, bad loans being made, the subprime market, um, and this is all just part of the problem. Um, when you don't have very good risk management, you often don't have very good uh, kind of governance and compensation. And part of the issue today 
that um, I guess the lawmakers and the average uh, people are kind of upset about is, you know, why should the government bail out, you know, Wall Street when over the past few years, these traders have made millions of dollars and it's banked. Yes, some people have lost some money on their investment in Lehman and these other investment banks, but they've got millions of dollars. So, so what's going on there? So part of this is a so-called moral hazard problem. And part of it is that you've got the incentive to take a very risky position because you know the worst thing that can happen to you is, well, you lose your job. But the best thing that can happen to you is you're 100 millionaire. And so roll the dice. And even if you lose your job, you move to the next job. So we do have some problems with incentives that too much risk actually uh, is being taken uh, in certain uh, operations. Can this be regulated? It's really difficult to do. Okay, and I want to talk about regulation a little later because the danger of the regulation is that it leads to capital flight. So instead of setting up your hedge fund in New York, you set it up in Ireland. You run your operations out of London. Okay, so we have to be extremely uh, careful in actually doing that. So, um, so there are many different causes of what actually happened. Um, and probably it's not that useful to go through and, and figure out what the causes are right now. I think what we need to address is what will happen, what should happen, and the sort of moves that are going on. Um, today, uh, as you know, the uh, Senate Banking Committee met and um, trying to figure out what to do with this plan. And it's uh, a plan that uh, I actually, as Mike said, um, was one of the people that were uh, pushing something like this. Instead of nationalizing Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley, Washington Mutual, Wachovia, and potentially a thousand other institutions, you know, why not go to the core of the problem and start to buy some of these highly illiquid assets? So this is different. People call this Resolution Trust II. Well, not quite. Resolution Trust was set up to dispose of the assets of failed institutions, failed SNLs. Okay, the idea here is to go in and you don't let them fail. You create a market, you purchase some of these securities, inject liquidity into the market, and allow them to function. Okay, and some people are pretty adamant, and you heard some senators today saying, I don't think a nickel should be spent on this. You know, that's what happens when you take uh, risk, you make a lot of money sometimes, and then sometimes you lose. The problem with that is that the collateral damage is very significant for the whole economy. So what we're facing right now is a situation, the so-called credit crunch. But that means that it's very difficult for small businesses, medium businesses, large businesses, and the average consumer to get loans. Without those loans, the economy could significantly slow down. I don't think we're in a depression-like situation. It's much different. But uh, there is a risk of what I call a deep recession. The last two recessions that we've had have been very mild. So 2001 lasted three quarters, and uh, year to year, um, there wasn't a negative uh, growth rate. The recession before that was also three quarters, very mild. And some people were saying, well, maybe this is the end of recessions. 
And amazingly, if you look at the data today, it doesn't really indicate that we're currently in a recession. Okay? It's, it's a close call. And it's, it, to me, amazing that you could have oil, you know, around $100 to $140 a barrel. In the past, that would have been enough to guarantee a deep recession. You've got housing bubble burst, and you've got credit issues. We've had these credit issues for a year, more than a year. All three of these things together, and you're not in deep recession. Okay, so we're basically running flat. Um, the last quarter, the growth number was a little skewed uh, because of the government rebate program, but we're running flat. So we're not in deep recession, and the key issue is whether we will go into deep recession given the events of the last couple of weeks. So what can be done quickly to inject liquidity into the system to avoid that outcome? And I believe the policymakers definitely want to avoid that outcome. And uh, the chairman of the Federal Reserve today said that if you don't act quickly, we will go into recession. Basically, he's saying we're not in recession right now, but we will go into recession. And I actually agree that if we don't get um, the markets fixed in terms of lending, then we are asking for very serious trouble. Okay, so that's you know, kind of my initial remarks. I know I've got other things to say, but they will be probably a result of uh, some of the questions. In particular, I could talk about how this uh, mechanism of the 700 billion could work um, and what are the implications, the AIG, things like that. So what I would like to do is to open it up uh, to questions. There are two microphones. Yeah, I know you got questions. Microphone, please. Uh, you actually have to walk to the microphone. <laughs> See right there. So you had, you talked earlier about the the difficulty of regulating. So that that example of the trader you used. If the trader makes a lot of money, you know, if he doesn't make a lot of money, if he loses a lot, the worst that happens is he goes somewhere else. He loses his job. Right. But if the free market was really in practice 100% and that trader lost a ton of money, that company would go out and that trader would never be able to find work again. So isn't really the best regulation the free market like it's always been? Uh, well, I guess the thing is that the trader like John Merriweather is a good example, right? That he drove LTCM to basically a zero value, and then starts up another fund very quickly. So I guess the thing is that um, people, uh, even though these traders might lose, they might get unlucky, um, people are still willing to invest with them, hopefully that they time it right. So I'm not sure what you can do with respect to regulation here. You know, th there, there is, it's not just traders, of course. It's the CEOs, and they're the target uh, in terms of the, the Senate uh, right now, like should we have caps on CEO salaries? You know, um, and I'm, I'm the first one to admit that it doesn't make any sense for Dick Grasso to have a $250 million payday as CEO of the NYSE. Um, but that's not his fault. You know, it's, a, it's a flaw in the corporate governance. You know, compensation like that is outlandish. Um, but I don't think you can regulate it away. You can create the conditions for good corporate governance. So I think that's important. Um, the, the other thing is that 
I don't think we want to compress all of our salaries um, because one of the attributes of the United States and why it's done so well is that it is so freewheeling and it is so able to fund risky ideas. And where you do that, there's often zero returns, um, but sometimes there's big positive returns. And in order to create that environment, the environment of innovation, um, you have to have this big skew in, in payouts. To, to start to regulate that, I think, is going to cause a lot of problems. My second question is, is do you think a lot of the problems that we're having now are a result of the Federal Reserve? So the Fed keeps interest rates so low for such a long time that you get this overinvestment in places where the investment isn't necessarily needed. So if we had a free market for, for interest rates, could a lot of these problems be avoided? I, I'm not prepared to, to, to just point out uh, and say this is a problem with the Federal Reserve. And I was certainly critical of uh, former Chairman Greenspan in keeping the Fed funds rate so low. Uh, it, to me, looking at the data, didn't make any sense. Indeed, um, I traded against it and it was lost money. Um, <laughs> because it just didn't make any sense to me that they could keep the rate so low for so long when the economy was, was growing, but jobs weren't growing. So um, it, it's part of the problem you know, to have a policy like that. I wasn't surprised that they didn't uh, drop the, the Fed funds rate from 2 to 1.5 um, or 1.75 because they really think that they want to keep out of that range, um, the 1% range, because that's you know, the pointing the finger at Alan Greenspan uh, as kind of the person that initiated it. I don't really think that's the whole story. Hello. Um, my question is, given this plan, and this was kind of the talk last night, so a lot happens in a day. I don't know if it's even relevant right now, but um, a lot of the talk was that by maybe making this a sort of a forced sale of these assets, when in reality the fair value down the road might be, say, 70 cents on the dollar, but right now due to mark-to-market type accounting, you know, the sale might actually go out at 30 cents on the dollar, and you're actually forcing these companies to take a loss so that their books can look okay for Wall Street, what would your perspective be instead of the government coming in and consolidating this of kind of relaxing the mark-to-market accounting regulations and allowing these banks to keep the assets on the books until maybe they're worth 70 cents on the dollar? And then um, as a follow-up, what would you think of the markets and where we might be in, say, May 2010? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, but the, the advice on the second question you have to pay for. Uh, uh, on the first one, this is, this is really, I think, uh, an interesting aspect. And, um, and hopefully this is covered in some of the financial accounting courses. Um, the, the real reason that Goldman and Morgan Stanley wanted to become bank holding companies. It has nothing to do with gathering these deposits that are FDIC insured. It has to do with the mark-to-market accounting. Okay, so, so basically, uh, you've got uh, FASB 115, which you should review. It's on the FASB website. Uh, and 
hopefully many of you know this, that there's three different ways that you can account for the asset. And one is that you hold it to maturity. And uh, the second one is you hold for sale. And when you hold for sale, any fluctuation in the value doesn't, isn't reflected on your income statement. And the third way is, um, is that you're holding it for trading. Okay, so the problem with the investment banks is that they're traders. Okay, so their assets are held for trading, which means they're marked to market, and the details of the marked to market is FASB 157. And again, you should maybe review 115 and 157. Okay, and you'd be really informed on this. And that's what really caused a lot of the problems because you're right that the fundamental value of the asset under kind of reasonable assumptions over the time horizon of the asset might be 60 cents. Um, but the market is dried up in terms of liquidity and there are very few bids. And the bids are really low. You have to mark the market and you get into a lot of trouble. So, so I think that uh, a large part of the reason to move in that direction was to get the more favorable accounting treatment. Now, can we go, at this point, it's too late. It's too late to, to get rid of, um, or to switch it back to held for investment. So, because the investment banks are gone, effectively gone. There are boutique investment banks left, but they are effectively gone. So I don't think that some change in accounting regulations at this point, and people will study this, right? November 15th, 2007. FASB 157, okay? And they're gonna study the implications of this in terms of what happened uh, in terms of the investment banks. But the mark-to-market is definitely, uh, definitely a factor. Uh, let me, given that we're talking about that, let me talk about kind of how this reverse auction, I think, is going to work. It's not even clear how it's gonna work. I talked, you know, two hours ago to somebody from the Treasury and asked very specific questions about the mechanism, and they didn't know. So it's very vague right now, and maybe on purpose it's vague. But the way effectively it's gonna work, let's say that um, we've got this giant, what I call distressed fund, $700 billion. And let's look at a particular security, some mortgage-backed security, and um, what the Treasury's gonna do is to run a valuation model. There's plenty of these models out there, hopefully their model is a good model, okay? In their model, they're gonna make assumptions that they're gonna hold this for, let's say, three, four, five years. They're not gonna assume that the current situation is gonna be maintained. And they're gonna get a price, a model price, and suppose that price for this asset is 60 cents. Then what they're gonna do is to go out and put a, um, you know, a notice out that they will entertain offers, this re request for offer. And people that are holding this asset will offer it to this giant distress fund. And you can think of a schedule of offers that comes between 50 cents and 70 cents. And with the reverse auction, you choose the lowest price. Okay, so in regular auction, you always get the highest, but given that you're buying, um, you choose the lowest price, and the lowest price would be 50, so you take everything from 50 to 60 cents. Now at this point, it's not clear whether they would pay on the schedule of what you offered or pay everybody who offered 60 cents and less 60 cents. And given what 
the chairman of the Federal Reserve said in testimony today that they actually didn't want to go out and do a fire sale um, purchase. Now, the fire sale purchase might be a good thing for taxpayers because you buy cheap. But it could be a negative thing for the financial system. So I think what he's saying is we're not going to pay the, the fire sale price, which might even be below 50 cents in my example. What we'll do is we'll pay our model price, which we think is closer to the fundamental value of the asset. Now, my example is pretty simple. To implement this is a nightmare because all of these different assets have different characteristics. So it's not just one mortgage. It's many different types of mortgages, maturities, different features on them, derivatives layered into them, and, and not to even mention the, the derivative books that are out there. Okay, so this is not easy to pull off. But the bottom line is that some of this illiquid stuff will be taken out of the market at um, prices that are better than today. Some stuff, there's no bid. There's no bid. You want to sell, nobody will bid. Okay, so that situation is basically a breakdown of markets. There's no liquidity. So the 700 will help. Is it enough? I seriously doubt it. So just in terms of um, if we start seeing, you know, just for example, in Alt-A, which is kind of the next thing down from subprime, there's $2 trillion of Alt-A. Okay, and if you look at just the prime mortgages, if there's leakage from the prime mortgages, you know, that's, that's going to be a hit. And I guess the thing that I'm worried about the most is that all the focus is on the investment banks, you know, and maybe some of the commercial banks like Washington Mutual and Wachovia, and, you know, and they should be concerned about these uh, banks and the other thousand. But what about four? It's got $166 billion of debt. There's a lot of non-financials that are at risk right now. But there's no focus on them right now. The, the good thing, if there's a good thing, it is that the leverage of the non-financial corporate sector has, has come down uh, since the last uh, business cycle. Okay, so they are, relatively speaking, in better shape. However, there's still a lot of danger. So what I'm watching for, you know, as a trader on this, is signs that the economy is really faltering. Okay? We've seen seven months in a row of negative job growth, but we haven't seen really big negative numbers. Like other recessions, you see like minus 200,000 on non-farm payrolls. We haven't seen anything like that. Okay? And you look at the data, you know, housing prices, yes, have gone down, but it still seems like the economy is chugging along. Once we see a chink in, in the armor, then I think we're, we're in trouble because it spreads beyond, you know, the financial institutions into the non-financials. And then the government's in real spot. Because they've been so generous to Wall Street, why not be generous to Main Street? Okay. Another question. Um, so, what, I, what has been said is um, over a, a number of three years until the arms that were set in 2001 are now resetting. Um, and of course, as the economy was doing well, there were a lot of these arms that were given out. Um, why hasn't a solution such as 
um, going back and renegotiating these adjustable rate mortgages with people um, being entertained at all because at the end of the day, if somebody assumed that at the end of three years I was going to be paying $300 for my apartment and now it resets to $1,000, um, there should be a way to renegotiate with the bank so that they can actually go back and make those payments over a much longer period of time. So why hasn't that been entertained? Yeah, that's, a, that's a, an insightful question. Um, so let me just make a few remarks. The, the first one is that uh, actually arms aren't looking too bad right now with the treasury bill rate less than 1%. So, so interest rates have come down. So to be in a variable rate mortgage, there could be some advantage to that. Um, but th that's not really the point of your question. The point of your question is like, one, I just renegotiate. And that's exactly what's gonna happen. So uh, I think it, it's actually hard for the government to reduce the mortgage rate. You know, and indeed, they tried many times, they were slashing the Fed funds rate to try to reduce the mortgage rate, but the short-term rate was going down, but the long-term rate was, was sticky. And mortgages are longer-term securities. So it's difficult to reduce that rate. They can reduce the spread between treasuries and the mortgage, but really what we care about is the rate itself. So I think that what will happen is they are certainly trying to reduce the rates because look, they've nationalized everything, right? The Fannie, Freddie, and they already nationalized Ginnie Mae. So when I look at, um, at the mortgage-backed securities, right? When I look at the Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, you know, they should, allowing for the optionality of prepaying and stuff like that, taking that out of the equation, they're like government bonds. So the rates should come down on those. Okay, but that's not enough. So reducing the rate, like renegotiating your fixed rate or changing the variable rate in some way, that's not going to be enough. Because the problem is that somebody's got a mortgage on uh, a house that's worth $300,000 and their mortgage is for $500,000. And so reducing the rate by even a full 100 basis points, not going to help that. So what we will see is um, so-called cram down. So a cram down is a type of bankruptcy uh, lingo where basically what you're doing is resetting the principal. Okay, so uh, you know, I think that that's inevitable. So the principal is sometimes um, so far beyond the value of the property that the bank has got a choice either foreclose, which is very costly, and the more foreclosures, it affects properties around um, the property is foreclosed, and it's very difficult for the bank to sell the property, so they want to avoid the foreclosure. So you're going to see a lot of kind of resets, not of the rate, but of the principle. Now, again, we need to be very careful here as to how this happens. If the government forces banks to do this, then the bank might do it, but they're not keen on making new mortgages. And that's what we really want. We need the market to pick up so that people will actually be able to get a mortgage at a reasonable rate in reasonable terms. If the government starts going in and says that you must reset the principal on a whole series of mortgages, you know, I think that it would have uh, the same effect as kind of shooting in the foot. 
Okay, so you need to be very careful. Politically, it seems reasonable um, that there should be some legislation. Maybe there's some other way to encourage banks to do this. Banks on their own have the incentive to uh, reduce the principal because of the cost that is imposed upon the bank of foreclosure. Okay, so it's very costly for them to do. So they need to work it out in terms of how much you can reduce the, um, the principal bond. Very difficult to legislate. Another question? Hi. Uh, so given that, I mean, we're going to be spending 700 billion or even more, what do you think the impact on the dollar is going to be? And do you think the US government, I mean, the sovereign credit rating is actually under risk? And uh, my second question is, we actually had uh, Eric Rosenfeld, he was, I think, third in hierarchy at LTCM. Yes. Come down and he spoke to us and he was, he actually said we were not 100 to 1 leverage, but that was what we ended up with and that we were closer to 30 to 1 or something like that. Yeah. So, I mean, your it, opinions and, on Yeah, that. he worked at LC, LTCM, right. Um, so, he, wa he wasn't 100 to 1, but he was 100 to 1 uh, in the end. Well, what, what counts is at the end, right? At the end, he's 100 to 1. Um, so, let me kind of... Uh, touch on a few things here. The first thing is that we've heard the politicians say, this is going to cost us $700 billion. Well, um, it could cost $700 billion. And that's the scenario that every single asset that the government buys goes to the value of zero. Okay, so that's, that's the scenario of costing $700 billion. That is extremely unlikely, and given this scenario, it's actually the opposite situation. You are buying, you're not just buying cheap, but the act of buying moves the market up. So, so I think that this is not going to be a cost of, uh, of $700 billion. Um, now, it is true that the expected return on this is not going to be the same as if they were buying at fire sale prices. And as I said, Chairman said today, we're not going to do that. So we're not going to pay 10 cents on a dollar. Okay, so, so I think that uh, in the end, there's going to be plenty of these assets that are purchased by this distress fund that will go to zero. But there's also going to be plenty that have you know, triple digit returns. So I think that this is not, it's going to cost cash in the short term, definitely. Right? You have to have $700 billion to do this. And, and in my opinion, more. 700 billion is not enough. And it's, it's interesting to be very vague as to say what qualifies. Like, what can we buy? They're not really specifying. Some people say it's mortgages. Well, it's not just mortgages. It's going to be all sorts of exotic things. They have to use their judgment as to what they should actually buy. Okay? Um, let me, uh, given that we're talking about that, um, let me just make a remark on the AIG deal. You know, again, people say, well, cost. $85 billion. Well, um, it is true that $85 billion of cash went out as a loan. Okay? A loan that's got an interest rate of 11% in today's uh, numbers. 11% loan. Oh, and also 79.9% of the companies thrown in. Okay, at, at you know, basically a, a penny warrant. So it is no surprise to me 
that the investors in AIG are trying to undo that deal. Like there's not one hedge fund in the world right now that wouldn't die to do that deal. It is the ultimate deal. AIG is a solid, fundamentally good company, right? Its stock price a year ago was $70, and today it's five, okay? To go and lend money to keep them going at 85 or 85 billion, 11% interest rate plus get 80% of the firm, that is a deal. It's a huge, I believe that will be the trade of the century, and Paulson will get credit for it, okay? Nobody close to it. The problem, of course, the hedge funds couldn't do it because nobody's big enough to do it. And nobody could coordinate um, to get the funds together to pull something like this off. So uh, they would have liked to have done it, but they couldn't do it. Good. To the dollar. Okay? And you know, one of the imbalances in the world uh, has been the dollar and our, our trade deficit. Uh, and People say, well, how long can this go on? How long can this go on? And um, I, yeah, I'm not going to make specific predictions as to what the, um, the dollar-euro exchange rate is going to be. But I think it's important that we kind of relate this to the fundamentals of the economy. The first thing is that it is possible that the U.S. could dodge like a really, really deep recession with all of this, which would be good for the economy it's not so clear that other countries are going to be so lucky, Europe in particular. So Europe could be hit harder economically than the U.S. Okay, so that's important to keep in mind. The second thing that's always important is to have the inflation equation in your head. And from your intro finance course or macro course, um, you know that equation, right? It's real simple. It's identity. There's very few things that we do in you know, academic finance or economics, that's an identity. But this one is. M times V equals P times Q. It's the money supply times the velocity is the price level times the output. The output you can think of as GDP. And right now our GDP is flat. Okay? And then on the other side, money supply. Well, money supply has been growing at not a great, like a large rate, but recently with these injections, we're seeing some growth in money supply. The V is the problem. So the V has, has drastically been reduced. V is very difficult to measure, but we know that in a credit crunch, that V decreases, the velocity of money. And deleveraging, that, that is just reducing velocity. Okay, so, so one of the big calls is going to be what's going to happen to U.S. inflation, which is very much linked to your question on the dollar. So if you've got a good view of that, then you can make some money on the currency trade. So you look at um, inflation-protected uh, securities like TIPS. Yesterday, the 10-year break-even inflation rate, the 10-year break-even inflation rate was 1.9%. If you look at the chart of inflation over 10 years, like that, that is very low inflation. Today, it's 1.7. So and I think that that number is being confounded by so-called flight to quality. Okay, so, you know, basically, if you believe the break-even inflation, it's saying that the velocity is basically going down by more than the money supply is being pumped up. Okay, so, so the answer to your question is an indirect answer, but this is the way that the, the currency people actually think about it. 
we need a view on inflation, not just in the US, but in other countries. Because my view is that inflation won't be 1.7% average over the next uh, 10 years, that it'll be more in the low 2% range. Um, I believe that in the current situation, that uh, the uncertainty about the US has caused you know, uh, the US exchange rate to take a hit recently. But I think that a lot of these market reactions, people have a reaction, but then, then they start to think about the implications. So, well, one implication of the US being in economic trouble is that other countries follow it. Okay? And this is kind of a, an important teaching point, that as we become more globalized, um, it affects the correlations between uh, economies. So basically what we're doing, and the growth in globalization, just um, amazing for the US, over the last 15, 20 years, the size of the trade sector has doubled. There's extraordinary uh, growth in the global sector, which is good in a way because we share our risk. So a lot of the subprime stuff, not held in the US, held overseas. So when that market disappeared or um, took a huge hit, it's not just people in the US losing their savings, it's people outside the US. And presumably they're holding diversified portfolios and that you know, is offset by some other positive uh, in their portfolio. Okay, so there is some sharing of risk. Um, and basically what this means in terms of the economy is that one country can have a slowdown and it is muted by maybe some other country having some growth and the country in the slowdown can have some strong exports. And that's exactly what we've seen in the US. That the last quarter's number um, was driven not just by the tax rebates, but by strong export sector. Okay, so we are, like in a way, diversified to that extent. However, and this is a big however, correlations change through time. And correlations are actually a function of the degree of the severity of the economic situation. So when we pass a threshold of weakness in the economy, then the correlations increase. And I believe we're at that point. So what I mean is that it might be a situation if the US was having kind of flat growth, other countries could be you know, growing. But if the US starts to have like minus two, minus three, minus 4% real GDP growth, that's gonna spill over to these other countries. So what people haven't done yet is done the analysis of the so-called economic beta. Okay, you have to look at the economic beta of these other countries, and then you come up with a view on exchange rates. So, kind of a long-winded uh, way to answer your question. In the short term, we're going to see some weakness. The U.S. economy um, has, um, you know, the foundation to recover, and um, I believe we're on the path. Okay, it's a rocky path, though. So, two questions here. Um, what's your opinion on short selling in relation to the current situation and how do you feel about the, the recent ban? On I don't know if you saw the quote today in the Wall Street Journal about the short selling. You know, they reversed a lot of what they said. Um, so no short selling on financials and then some were added, some were subtracted and then okay, it's, it's okay to short sell if you're hedging. Right? Um, so I really, 
believe that short selling is not the culprit uh, here. Um, short selling is very useful um, in terms of what we want is the price to be meaningful in revealing information. And if you don't have short selling, if somebody that's got the negative information, um, it, it can't be incorporated in that price that easily. So what they do is if they've got an investment portfolio, all they can do is to take their holdings of that particular security to zero. Okay? And what they really want to do is not to take it to zero, let's say from 5% to, to zero, they want to go from 5% to minus 5%. Right? And, and that reveals information to the market that could be very useful. The short sellers were the ones that revealed the problems, that asked the tough questions um, in terms of like WorldCom and Enron. There's many examples of very useful short selling. Okay? Um, and I think you're talking about short selling in general rather than naked short selling, which might be a, a different situation, which could lead to squeezes, right, where there's more shorts out there than actual shares. And that's not, that's not useful. Um, in terms of the economy. But just to, to ban short selling, uh, to me, is not a solution. And the way that they executed this, where they banned it and then they changed the rules, it, it, to me, it indicates that they really hadn't thought it through. And there's a lot of research, um, finance research, um, and it's just, this has been around a long time, and I think that uh, this could have been executed uh, a little um, a little better. Now, it's also the case that um, the, I guess the CEO of Morgan Stanley was very um, adamant about this. The shorting in, in Morgan Stanley and some other financials was you know, very costly for his firm. Um, I guess the issue is whether those prices were the correct prices and they, how fast they got there. Um, and, and hopefully, the one thing that's sometimes confusing to people is well, you know, so what if Morgan Stanley stock price is, is dropping? You know, that's just the shareholders, right? So why should that affect the company? Right? You issue your shares, you collect the money when you issued the shares, and then people are trading amongst themselves, so the stock price drops. And why is that going to drive them uh, into a desperate move? And indeed, last week it seemed like uh, you know, they had two more days left at the rate of decline of their stock price. So what's, what's going on there? And what's going on there is, is pretty simple. Um, it is that the stock price is used in the valuation models for the debt and for the so-called credit default swaps. Okay, so they use a model um, called the Merton model. And Merton is one of the people at LTCM that got the Nobel Prize uh, with Scholes um, or um, the Black and Scholes option pricing model. It's got a very famous uh, model, and in that model, uh, you look at basically um, a measure of leverage, which is the, you know, the value of the debt divided by the market value of the stock. So as the stock price goes down, that debt, the CDS spread, um, increases, and the debt becomes more expensive, more expensive debt, more difficult to fund your operations, and you get into this spiral that you can't really get out. Okay, so, so I'm of the opinion that there's plenty of other things to worry about that the short sales should be put aside. There's, uh, you know, a lot of people were very negatively affected by this, um, and I'm hoping that the market will recover once these regulations have been relaxed somewhat.
So shortly after the Bear Stearns failure, the Fed issued a white paper, which sort of laid out its vision on regulation. It said that it wanted to absorb the SEC and the CFTC. I'm just kind of curious to hear your ideal regulatory model going forward. Oh, that's a question that I can't answer in six minutes. Um, and I'm not going to be you know, smart about the answer, like saying, well, no regulation. Um, it, it's, it's clear that there are negative externalities, and we're in the middle of one right now. And that's where you need regulation. So um, it is true that, that I think that amongst all of the people and institutions um, to, to point your finger at, um, we have to also point at the regulators. Okay? And it is so complicated. There's so many different regulatory bodies that there could be a logic to rationalizing that into one organization. Um, but, you know, it's easy to say. It kind of makes sense in a few sentences. But to actually pull something off like that is extremely complex. Okay, what we really need is flexibility. Uh, we need somebody to go in there and, and to figure out what's actually needed um, to do the job as efficiently as possible, where what we're wanting to avoid, obviously, is a situation like we've got today. But we also want to solve some of the uh, inequities uh, in the system. So regulation, we are you know, into a stage. There will inevitably be regulation. And the cost, the huge cost, the Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley, they've bitten the bullet here because now they're going to be regulated by the Federal Reserve Bank. Okay, and that's significant. That means that they have lost a lot of flexibility. Okay, so, you know, Goldman's um, leverage 24, Morgan Stanley 33, Bank of America 10. Okay, so they need to bring that leverage down. They've got a whole new set of regulations. Yes, they've got access to some Federal Reserve capital now. Yes, they will have access to FDIC um, when they get uh, depositors. But um, they're, you know, what they do will change. And the thing that I worry about so much, and this has to do with your question of regulation in addition, um, is that you can make the case, as one of my colleagues has, Manju Puri, that there's a logic to having commercial banks do investment banking. Okay? Um, but it's a different question to have all investment banks effectively part of commercial banks. And nobody's really done any research on that. And you lose something. You lose this kind of um, freewheeling risk-taking that has been the tradition of Wall Street, which has been the tradition of the US. The US is in the position that it's in in the world because it's been willing not just to come up with ideas, but to make those ideas happen in terms of turning them into uh, viable businesses. The people have been willing, in terms of private equity, in terms of these investment banks, to go in and set up the conditions whereby that idea turns into reality. It's high risk. It's high expected return, but sometimes it doesn't turn out. Okay? And I fear that we're going to lose that. 
and we could lose it in a quagmire of regulation also. And if that's the case, we're going to lose something very important for kind of the future growth of the U.S. And, and you know, I strongly believe that, that that could be the real hit here. Yes, I understand why um, Merrill Lynch had to, had to basically uh, merge or sell because um, it was a desperate situation. Um, and I understand why Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley you know, had to become bank holding companies because it's a desperate situation. That's, that's just the fact of the circumstances today. It might be a result of their poor planning in terms of risk management, but the fact is that we don't have the same sort of financial system. And there could be a void in terms of what they did in the past. It's not going to be filled by the boutique investment banks that are still out there. They are a very small part of the market. So what I worry about, and I certainly hope, uh, what the policymakers um, worry about, though I don't have a lot of confidence on this, is, uh, is the long term. Unfortunately, all the bias in our system, whether it is the trader or the CEO or the politician, they're operating for their bonus next year or to be reelected in the short term. And the main hurdle that we, uh, that we face is these decisions are being made with the short term in consideration rather than the long term. And I hate to lose that part of the economy. We have lost the investment banking part, and the implications could be serious. Now, I, I said at the beginning that I'm not the, the doomsayer here, um, and it's hardly the case. And I know we're at, uh, at 5 o'clock, so let me just kind of circle back. Um, the government has demonstrated that they will basically print their way out of this problem. Okay? Uh, and indeed, the chairman of the Federal Reserve, before he was chairman of the Federal Reserve, made this uh, joke that we'll not see deflation in the U.S. because we could always do a helicopter drop of cash. And it's a famous example that Milton Friedman uh, actually uh, used, um, which is true. Given that we're the reserve currency of the world, we can print our way out of deflation. People are saying, this is just like Japan. This is not Japan, okay? This is hardly Japan. So Japan, 1989, the stock market in Japan worth more than the U.S. stock market. The Nikkei at 40,000. 40,000. Today, the Nikkei is at 11,000. Okay? Our stock market has not fluctuated that much. If you were holding over the last year, it's been a bit painful, but it has not fluctuated that much. That's difference number one. The real estate bubble in Japan, you know, uh, made the U.S. look like, in former Chairman Greenspan's words, froth. It's a massive bubble, number two. Number three, the policymakers in Japan were very slow to, to resolve the problems. They allowed banks to operate, and everybody knew these banks were zombie. Zombie being you're operating, but you're dead. Okay, and they held it out for a long period of time. Number four, there are flaws with corporate governance in that the bank's boards were populated by CEOs of very large companies within Japan who made sure that their bank provided 
funding and credit for those large companies. And as a result, they starved the small and medium businesses. Okay, this is, I think, the most important lesson of Japan. And I know the chairman of the Federal Reserve today knows this lesson. Okay, what happened in Japan, because a small business and medium business was starved for credit, that meant there was no growth. There was no investment. There was no employment growth. Because small and medium businesses are the engine of growth in an economy. The larger firms are just kind of chugging along more mature and not necessarily hiring that much. So when you direct the credit to the large firms, then you are shooting yourself in the foot. Okay, so I think this is a very important lesson. The other thing is that they let deflation happen. And deflation is a bad thing for economic growth for the following reason. If you're deflating, why should you buy the good right now? Why not wait? Because you know the price is going to go down. So the longer you wait, the longer the price goes down. So I'm not going to spend. Okay? The sixth difference is, of course, the, uh, the culture of saving in Japan is drastically different than the US. So if somebody tries to make the case that our situation is like Japan, I don't buy it at all. Are we headed for a long period of slowdown? Yes. Relative to the last couple of recessions, each was only three quarters. This is going to last longer. And I've referred to it as kind of like a bathtub scenario. Okay, so you kind of, it's a longer kind of U-shape. We'll see slower growth for a period of time that's longer than the usual um, slowdown. Okay, is it going to be 15 years long? No. Is it going to be a depression situation? No. Now, as for you, as I said at the beginning, you need to diversify your job search. Okay, I think that's obvious. Okay, but I would definitely, and, and, and I am kind of lecturing you on this. You know, don't make any assumptions. Diversify and diversify outside the US too. So be bold. There are jobs out there. And the, the great thing is that you're at a top school. If I was giving this talk to a second or third tier business school, it's a totally different story. Okay? So it means that you will have perhaps um, instead of three offers, two offers, or four or three. Okay? It might mean that you don't have three offers in Wall Street, that you've got an offer in Zurich or Frankfurt or in Asia. Okay? But the demand for finance has not gone down. It's just been redistributed. And I think that you know, given there's still a lot of uncertainty, there's a lot of stuff to work out, and there's a lot of politics that are confounding it. You know, I believe that we can get through this. I believe that the US economy is sufficiently diversified that we're not going to go into um, a scenario that uh, some people even refer to the depression. I think that there's extremely low probability. Okay? There is an investment environment out there that demands experts instruments that are out there and these are instruments not just you know within the mix of these investment banks or financial institutions are complex they're more complex today than they've been um, in the past it demands expertise like we're training you here for so I would not be discouraged at all because that works against you and even though it seems like a dire situation there are opportunities always 
as I said, for traders. These are fabulous opportunities. These are once-in-a-generation opportunities to buy uh, at, at reduced prices. So I would go out there uh, with a broader horizon, but very confident, given your training here, you're in good shape uh, to move forward. So I think that's 5 o'clock. So, yeah. <laughs>